Good morning and welcome to Northminster. No matter who you are or how you got connected with us this morning, we're grateful that you're here. So much has changed in our world so quickly. It is good to be in community with one another, staying connected to these relationships that sustain us and to the sacred stories that ground us around which we continue to gather week after week. If you're looking for a way to help in a very tangible way in this season, we issued a call over Facebook this week for anyone willing to help sew protective masks for caregivers. This week, as we've touched base with a few nurses and doctors in our community, they've shared a grave concern about the availability of protective masks and their ability to protect themselves in this moment when they are most needed. If you have a sewing machine or you have access to one, you can make a difference. On our website and on Facebook, we've posted some simple instructions for DIY masks for people to make. And then on Fridays, between the hours of 1 and 2 p.m., someone will be at the church building to receive donations and ensure they get to people that need them. If you don't have a sewing machine, one thing you can do is share online that Northminster is a drop-off location to anyone who is making masks and that we have folks in mind who will use anything they can get. Remember that just because we aren't physically meeting together doesn't mean that you have to be disconnected from Northminster in this season. We're trying out new and creative ways of being community online each week, and we're open to your suggestions about ways to do that going forward. This week, we'll continue our book study on Wednesday night. We'll have an open living room chat just to check in on Thursday night. And then our parents group will meet online this Saturday, so parents, please be watching for more information on that. As we learn and relearn what it means to be the church in this season, we want to be as present and available as we can be to any of our community that is in need of immediate help. If this means that you're in a more vulnerable bracket because of your age or health and need someone to go to the grocery store for you, please do not hesitate to reach out. We'll connect you with someone who can help. It is not worth the risk of going out right now. Or if you've lost your source of income as a result of this pandemic and need immediate crisis assistance, please let us know. We'll help however we can and connect you with others who also may be able to help. We also encourage you to go look at the resources page that we've begun on our website and see if there's anything there that might be able to help. A few weeks ago, we posted on our Facebook page asking for resources, and we got a lot of good input very quickly. If you have anything more to add to the list, you're welcome to go online and let us know. Whether it feels like it or not, Holy Week will begin next week on Palm Sunday. And it has been a great Northminster tradition for years to gather for lunch on the weekdays of Holy Week for a meal and reflection. This year, our pastor emeritus, Dr. Welton Gaddy, will be hosting those reflections. So keep an eye out for more information coming soon about those online daily gatherings and about our other Holy Week services to help ground us in this central story of our faith. Now, I invite you to take a deep breath.
as we prepare to worship God together this morning. Welcome to Northminster. In his teachings, Buddhist poet and peace activist Thich Nhat Hanh teaches that the work of prayer is first recognizing our suffering and second, embracing it. He writes, a parent taking care of a crying baby naturally will take the child into their arms without suppressing, without judging it, or without ignoring the crying. Prayer is like that parent recognizing and embracing suffering without judgment. So the practice, he writes, is not to fight or suppress the unpleasant feeling, but rather to cradle it with tenderness. When a parent embraces their child, that energy of tenderness begins to radiate into the body of the child. Even if the parent doesn't understand at first why the child is suffering, and they need some time to figure out what the difficulty is, just their act of taking the child into their arms with tenderness can already bring relief. If we can recognize and cradle this suffering while we breathe mindfully, while we pray, then there is relief already. So in this time when we carry so much suffering in our bodies, so much fear or uncertainty, maybe even anger. While it's the typical American narrative to ignore it and seek out something more pleasant, it's our work as people of God to be present to it, to allow the Holy Spirit to embrace it as a parent embraces their child. And in doing so, we water the seeds of peace in ourselves and therefore the peace in our world. So in that spirit, I would like to invite you to engage in that work now with a simple breathing prayer. Go ahead and get comfortable. Allow your body to settle wherever it's sitting. And join me as you breathe in. Say, breathing in, I acknowledge the anxiety. Breathing out. I cradle it with love. Acknowledge anxiety, cradle with love. Let's do that about five times.
now breathing in saying, I experience the calm in me and breathing out, I smile to the calm in me. Experience the calm, smile to the calm. Again, about five times. And finally, breathing in, I experience the joy in me. Breathing out, I smile to the joy in me. Experience joy, smile to joy. Holy Spirit of God, that dwells within the sacred temple of our hearts, in teaching us your gentle acceptance and love for all things, even the unpleasant things, water the seeds of peace within us, the peace that surpasses all understanding. Amen. A reading from Genesis 1. Then God said, Let us make humankind in our image to be like us. Let them be stewards of the fish in the sea, the birds in the air, the cattle, the wild animals, and everything that crawls on the ground. Humankind was created as God's reflection. In the divine image, God created them. Female and male, God made them. God blessed them and said, Bear fruit 
increase your numbers and fill the earth and be responsible for it. This is one of our sacred stories. Thanks be to God. A reading from Jeremiah 10. Listen, Israel, don't adopt the ways of the nations. Don't be terrified at heavenly signs. Let the nations be terrified of them. For the carved idols of the nations are frauds. A tree in a forest is cut down and worked with a chisel by the hands of an artesian. Workers adorn it with silver and gold decorations and fasten it down with hammer and nails to keep it from tottering. Their idols are as silent as scarecrows in a melon patch. Because they cannot walk, they are carried about. Don't fear them, for they can do no harm, nor can they do good. No one is like you, Yahweh. You are great, and great is your mighty name. This is one of our sacred writings. Thanks be to God. This week, I encountered the first of what I'm sure will be many online posts describing the coronavirus as a sign of the end times. I'm not going to give airtime to that theory, and if you encounter it, I hope you engage it with a healthy suspicion. But I do want to talk about this apocalypse we're living. And I don't use that term lightly, though it may not be in the way you expect. In her book, Shameless, Reverend Nadia Boltzweber talked about how at the time of her writing in 2018, our nation was in the midst of a different kind of upheaval, the Me Too movement, which she called the Me Too apocalypse. You see, there's a reason the book of Revelation is the go-to example of an apocalypse. Its name, Revelation, is just a direct translation of the Greek word apocalypse, the revealing. But it's not the only one. Revelation is part of a whole genre of apocalyptic literature, a genre whose function is to tell a story that reveals something about divine reality, something that otherwise would have remained hidden. Often the story does have something to do with fire and death and the end of days, but that's never what it's really about. So an apocalypse has this connotation of revealing. It's about uncovering, peeling back, showing what's underneath. I can think of no better metaphor for what happened in our nation with the onset of the Me Too movement. Boltzweber wrote that it was like the corner has peeled up on our culture and now there's a little cat fur and dust on it and we can't get it to stick back down. She suggests we have to take that peeled up corner and pull even if it hurts. When that happens, when we pull the veil away, it can feel like death. It can feel like the end. 
But the whole point of John's apocalypse is that even when it feels like it, this is not the end. We're in another season right now where it feels like death. Maybe more like a thousand small deaths throughout the day. I told some friends this week, every time I have to change out a roll of toilet paper, it feels like a part of me dies. It's different for each of us. Usually in preaching, I can draw on my sense of our collective experience, but we're in such uncharted territory here, I can't begin to imagine what your life is like right now. The specific ways that your life has been turned upside down. I can share a little of what this has been like for me. For one, it's been the death of my ability to control my working environment, to create the exact conditions I need to be able to focus enough to write a sermon. It's the death of the illusion that I ever had control over my tomorrow, that sense of control that enabled me to feel confident going into the new day, as if that confidence were dependent on something that never existed in the first place. It's the death of my ability to compartmentalize my life, to draw imaginary boundaries between my pastor self and wife self and mama self and Claire self. Because right now they're all clamoring for attention and filling the same very limited physical space, the same handful of rooms day in and day out. I could go on and I'm sure you could too. But what I've realized in reflecting on this present apocalypse is that, well, first of all, it's not an apocalypse in the sense of the end of days. I don't think the coronavirus is a sign of anything other than a reminder of our human frailty and how much we depend on one another. But if this is an apocalypse, in the way that Me Too was an apocalypse, then it's revealing something. This sudden upheaval of society, this overturning of our daily lives almost overnight, has revealed for me something about idolatry. I'm not talking about a golden calf. I'm talking about whatever it is we've really been worshiping instead of God all this time. The chaotic disruption of our daily rhythms on a global scale and the unique way it's affecting each of us most deeply is the peeling back of the veil to reveal the idols we've all been worshiping individually and collectively. For me, it's actually a neat little pantheon of idols with names like certainty, control, predictability, and ease. 
I would wager that we all have a tendency toward idolatry somewhere in our hearts. If it weren't a universal inclination, I doubt it would have made it to the number one slot of the Ten Commandments. And if it's hard for you to identify your own idols, you're in good company. It's easier to recognize the sins of others, this much we know for sure. So we can start there. This past week, the nation watched as economy worship took center stage. As the Lieutenant Governor of Texas and the President of our nation prioritized finances over the lives of the human beings who will die of this virus if we do not act in their interest. And let's be clear, these men would probably identify as Christian, might even faithfully recite the same scripture from Jeremiah that we read today. I make no claims about their intentions. But the story of the people of God reminds us time after time that worship is not about what we say, but how we behave. Our worship is defined not by what creeds we recite, but by how we organize our lives, by where our behavior indicates that our ultimate concern truly lies. Prioritizing the economy over human beings made in the image of God is sin. So if money is their idol, how about ours? Four years ago, during Lent, when we had a three-month-old baby, for some reason, Zach and I decided to embark on the most stringent Lenten fast either of us has ever participated in. We gave up most foods. We had a list of 12 foods we could eat because that seemed like a nice biblical number. And the most significant truth I uncovered in that fast was how deeply I relied on a well-placed Coke Zero to make it through the day in that difficult season. Ever since then, that's been my go-to experience when I think about idolatry, not because I was praying to a can of Coke Zero, but because I was behaving in such a way that gave it more power than I ever would have said I believed it should hold. The last couple of weeks have felt to me a lot like that Lent four years ago, except that four years ago, I chose what I would give up. Most of us have now given up most of what used to make up our days. And even if we did it before it was mandated, it was certainly far from voluntary. So rather than choosing to cautiously lift the veil, to slowly come to terms with our own idolatry, this is a veil that's been ripped away like a Band-Aid and the wound underneath is still raw. It is hard to sit in our bodies, in our homes, and confront whatever it is we've been using to self-soothe. 
especially if it's something we can't get our hands on right now. And there are plenty of things we can't get our hands on right now. You probably weren't finding your identity in your stockpile of toilet paper, but maybe you were finding it in the satisfaction of doing good work and having other people around to see it. Or maybe you were finding it in the high of doing something concrete to help someone else because it made you feel needed. These things are good in themselves, just like a Coke Zero is arguably good in itself. But it's how we use them that makes the difference. The allure of an idol is that in placing it on our altar, we maintain the illusion of piety, deceiving even ourselves. I don't know if what I'm saying is hitting home for you, but if it is, it's likely to sting. And so there's an important follow-up I want to offer. In fact, maybe the truth we all most deeply need to hear right now as we wrestle with our inner demons that pop up in isolation, which I would argue are our idols begging to be worshipped. It's this. Whoever and whatever we've been worshipping all along, God has been there too. And God's not going anywhere and has nothing to offer but grace. The ancient Israelites lived through plenty of seasons that felt like death, that felt like the end. Why else would they have needed to write apocalyptic literature in the first place? It was in one of those seasons, after their kingdom had fallen and the people had been carried off into exile, that they began to reflect on what got them there. They looked back on the words of Jeremiah, his warnings about their idolatry, not just about worshiping gods carved from stone, but about idolizing security, pleasure, and power at the expense of the well-being of the poor and the vulnerable. They looked back and they saw that in the end, their idols had served them as idols always do, poorly, and they realized they needed to become part of a better story. And so it was that during the exile, the people of God began to write down the stories that had shaped their identity for generations, stripped of their homeland, their government, their security, stripped of those familiar idols, control, predictability, ease. They turned to the stories that grounded them in God's presence, 
They began to compile the literature that would come to us as scripture. Passages like the lyrical poetry of the creation narrative in Genesis. Humankind was created in God's reflection, made in the image of God. It is from these central verses in Genesis that we draw our theology of the imago Dei, the idea that we are each created in the image of God. These verses emerged as a direct response to the bankrupt idolatry that landed the people of God in exile in the first place. In other words, all of these idols these lesser images of the divine fashioned out of our own insecurity and fear. Those are knockoffs. The only true idol, the only true face of God we can see in this world is each other. Humanity is the image of God. We are living in an uncertain time. The curtain has been drawn back, revealing truths about ourselves we're not likely to want to face. Fear is a natural response. But we can't allow ourselves to dress our fear up as an idol and place it on the altar. Neither can we turn inward and hide. There's too much time at home to sit with ourselves. Our task in this season is to be brave enough to look this revelation, this apocalypse in the eye, to face the falseness of the idols we've been worshiping and to be willing to cast them down for the sake of our fellow human beings, the actual images of God all around us. Beloved, God pardons you of your idolatry for having worshiped other things all this time. In truth, God was there the whole time, saw it all unfold, understands and offers grace. And the best part is, you still have the opportunity to be a part of a better, hope-filled story. The economies of the earth will fail. Political systems come and they go. God has not crashed, will not tank, is not going anywhere. So take a breath. Look deeply into the faces of God in this world. And take heart. Amen.
in this time when we are unable to gather physically for communion. Please receive these words of institution that go beyond the walls of a single building. Let us take communion with the great cloud of witnesses that transcends time and place. When Jesus said, this is my body broken for you, it was not a limitation. It was not the institution of a ritual, but an invitation an invitation to see Christ in all things. He was not saying, I am here only. He was not saying, I am only in the bread or wine blessed by a priest or preacher, but rather, learn to see me here that you might see me everywhere. It was an invitation to be sustained by his presence in all things. Whenever you do this, Whenever you break bread, do it in remembrance of me. And likewise, when Jesus said, this is the new covenant sealed by my poured out life, he gave us a window into a new world, into a world in which all embracing grace was not a prize to be earned, but a gift. The divine birthright poured out for all humanity. Whenever you do this, something as common as drinking from a cup of wine. Remember me. So people of God, in the common elements around you, in the meal you are about to enjoy, recognize the great in the small, the presence of Christ in all things. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Beloved, as you begin this new week, may the peace of Christ uphold you. May the love of this community enfold you. And may the grace of God sustain you, whatever tomorrow may bring. You are seen, you are loved. Go in peace. Amen.